This is the Monday, January 23rd, 2017 episode of the History Authors Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Our national forests, we cherish their beauty, we marvel at their majesty, we embrace their heritage. But do you know how much we depend on our national forests? For clean air, wood for our homes, and drinking water for millions of Americans. So much depends on our national forests, but now they're depending on us. Trees have been devastated by insects, disease, and fires that burn so hot, even the seeds of future forests are destroyed. The Arbor Day Foundation asks for your help in replanting our national forests. Because so much depends on what we do today. So much beauty, so much life, so much that we hold dear. We must act now so that future generations can also depend on our national forests. Visit ArborDay.org. See what we're doing. See how you can help. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Well, winter is upon us, and for some strange reason, I've been thinking about ice fishing. It's not something I've ever done, and as may not surprise you, it's not very big in New Jersey, but I miss walking in the woods. I miss just going out there. Now, there's some woods around where I live in Bergen County, but there's not a lot to do in the winter, so I'm really looking forward to the spring springing and getting in some camping and all the other great outdoor activities you can have. It's with that in mind that this week our time machine turns on the four-wheel drive as we hike into the Allegheny National Forest, hunting for history. Joining us with his walking stick, Robert Hilliard, author of A Season on the Allegheny. Rob has written on sports, history, and the great outdoors for over two decades, including feature articles for outlets such as Upland Almanac, Pennsylvania Wildlife, Pittsburgh History Magazine, and ESPNOutdoors.com. He's formerly a contributing editor with Ohio Valley Outdoors Magazine and contributed to the history anthology Rivers of Destiny. You can pick up his trail online by following him at RobertHilliard underscore 66 on Twitter or toss him a line at Facebook.com slash a season on the Allegheny. Okay, Now that we've squeezed into our long johns and laced up those hiking boots, let's strap on our snowshoes, meet Robert Hilliard, and spend a season on the Allegheny. I'm joined on the line by Robert Hilliard, author of A Season on the Allegheny. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Thanks very much, Dean. I appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm a subscriber on iTunes, and I've been listening. I don't think I've missed an episode probably for the past 
almost the past year. I feel a little bit like a stand-up comic on a Tonight Show getting <laughs> called over to sit down next to Johnny Carson and talk to him. So it's a, it's an honor. Wow, high praise indeed. <laughs> and you left me a review on iTunes too, which is very kind of you, by the way. And I appreciate you joining me today because I've been having some cabin fever here. This is the middle of January when we're going to be airing this and when we're recording this. So I thought... Maybe I should do some fun winter things. I was thinking about ice fishing, which I've never done before. I was thinking about those old winter hikes that we used to take at Bear Mountain in New York State when I was in the Boy Scouts. And so I thought it'd be a good time to look back at the history of that sort of thing. And A Season in the Allegheny, while not a history book in the traditional sense, it does contain a lot of historical subject matter. It's easy to take these national parks for granted. It's easy to take a national forest for granted. You figure, hey, it must be easy just to let something grow and not build there. So I wanted you to take us back to the dawn of the preservation effort that we reap the benefits of today. You do that in a season on the Allegheny. So take us back to that, to the birth of our parks and forestry system. So give us an idea of what it was like growing up in Western Pennsylvania and absorbing this legacy right around you. To start off, the, you know, sort of the dawn of the conservation effort in the U.S. really started off at, I know, one of your your favorite periods of time uh, around the Gilded Age. And the, I think... What happened was with the westward expansion, of course, the end of the Civil War, relative peace, the completion of the railroads into the West, people started, A, realizing just how big and open this country is that we lived in, and B, at the same time, they were seeing in the eastern United States some of the ravages of, uh, it wasn't so much overdevelopment as it was just cutting every stick of woods in many places. and. And that goes all the way back to, you know, Walden and Thoreau writing extensively about the detriments that come from, from overlogging and from development in general and trying to escape to the wilderness. So there was a budding realization, I guess, and it started to take better form into the 1870s and 1880s. There were some things that also, I guess, simultaneous with that, the idea of recreation for recreation's sake started to exist for the first time in U.S. history and maybe even for the first time in human history because people had the benefit of a little bit of time to do that and some people had a benefit of a little money to do that. There was this sort of beginning awareness in the late 1800s of the idea that we may want to start to protect and preserve some of the the natural assets that our country has. One of the first places that it started to happen, and this is of course one of the subjects of the book, was with hunters and fishermen also, but really primarily initially with hunters. Teddy Roosevelt, of course, famously at the forefront of that, an avid, avid hunter, probably couldn't drag him out of the woods most times <laughs> because they were out in the wilderness or in places that had been wilderness. And then they saw the scars of devastating clear cutting as it was done at the time. They started to sort of make one one add up to two and realizing that if we do this everywhere, we're not going to have anything left. And what was happening by about the 1860s, 1870s in places like Pennsylvania, in fact, where the National, uh, where the Allegheny National Forest is today, is that species were disappearing. The eastern bison was gone for good. The eastern elk in Pennsylvania were gone. I think the last one was killed around 1869, 1870. So people started realizing that, hey, if we don't protect this habitat, we're going to continue to lose not just the woods, but 
the creatures that live in the woods. And then there was also kind of the, the budding of what we would call today environmental science, where they realized that those trees weren't just standing there, they were contributing something to the overall benefit of the environment, particularly when it comes to protecting watersheds and clean water supplies. A great example of that, of course, is the New York City water supply that's up into the Adirondacks, and you know that was basically established as a preserve for the purpose of keeping that clean water. So they started to kind of put that together and realize that this was something that needed to be taken care of, and like any other effort of, on that type of scale, took a long time to come to fruition. But in 1891, they first passed the Forest Reserve Act, and that was under Benjamin Harrison, who's not particularly a name that most people would associate with um, anything conservation efforts. Anything? <laughs> well, there <laughs> that yes. Uh, Other than having a handshake, they said was like uh, shaking hands with a chicken cutlet. They said <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> nice little guy. I've heard some audio of him. He sounds like a little more animated than you would ever think. But uh, they called him the human iceberg. So there, I don't get much chance to use my Benjamin Harrison knowledge. But you challenged me, and I shall have at you, sir. <laughs> well, so go ahead. I'm, I'm glad I could tee <laughs> that one up for you. When when Harrison signed, and maybe this is a you know reflection of what you're just saying with his personality. When he signed the Forest Reserve Act, it allowed presidents to start designating these, what they called public reservations at the time. It was under the Department of Interior, very similar to national parks. In fact, the very first forest reserve that was designated was an area around Yellowstone National Park, which had, had already been designated as national park. And it was really almost as a buffer, and the initial thought under uh Interior Secretary Noble at the time was, they were just an extension of the national parks. They had really more of a preservation charge to them. Unfortunately, the initial Forest Reserve Act didn't have any money set aside with it, didn't have any direction or guidance on administration. There were millions of acres designated over about an eight-year window. I think there were up close to 50 million acres had been set aside by three consecutive presidents, but they were basically in name only. And, and I should stress also, this is an important piece of the puzzle. These were all out west. Uh, initially, was the idea was to protect these areas that had not been cut yet out west because, of course, the westward expansion was still underway. There were still people living on the national forest. They had no mechanism to even chase people out if they came in and build a cabin or whatever and say, well, I'm going to live here. So for about six years, it sort of floundered along. There was nothing really done with them. In 1897, they passed the, what was called the Organic Act. That really started to reframe the idea of national forests. First of all, there was some money put into the pot to actually be able to administer them. Uh, they started taking a little bit more of an active role in the management of them. They started clearing out some of these people who, from the federal government's view, they were essentially squatters. Now, of course, some of those people were already living there when these forest reserves were designated and they had quite a different view of <laughs> of the situation. The really started taking a more active effort in establishing these and managing them as national forests. Well, I guess at that time actually the term was still forest reserves. I'm getting just a little bit ahead of myself. Yeah, let me let me interrupt you there to, for the term so you can make that distinction for us because there's a distinction between a national forest and a national park. And also you mentioned to me when I sent you the script that we were going to work off of that 
there's a difference in the spelling between New York and Pennsylvania. So I wanted you to make both of those distinctions for us so that when we do visit out there in the woods, we know exactly what we're looking at. Well, let me, yeah, let me take the second one first because that's the shorter discussion. <laughs> there's the spelling that's used in New York, the spelling that you see sometimes with A-L-L-E-G-A-N-Y. Sometimes you see it with an H after the G as well. And then, of course, there's the right spelling, which is the way we spell it in Pennsylvania, which is A-L-L-E-G-H-E-N-Y. That's how the Allegheny River is spelled, for which all of these things are named, and Allegheny County, where, where Pittsburgh is housed. And then when you go south of the Mason-Dixon line into Maryland, they start using a, an alternate spelling as well. So uh, when you're talking about, and really the, you know, the origin of the name goes back to colonial times when people like George Washington were out here during the, the onset of the French Indian War and some of the other explorers like Christopher Gist and as many of your listeners may know, Washington in particular wasn't especially careful about spelling, sometimes you know, using different spellings within the same letter for some things. Mm-hmm. And they were in turn interpreting what they heard the Native Americans who were here call the river. And so you have the lost in translation piece of it. You have the, well, I'm going to spell it this way this time, and I'm going to spell it a different way the next time. So you end up with multiple spellings of the word Allegheny. My feeling on it is a little bit like in the miracle on 34th Street, where the judge at the end says, if the U.S. government declares this man to be Santa Claus, so I say, you know, it's, a, <laughs> it's the Allegheny National Forest, and if the U.S. government declares this to be the correct spelling of Allegheny, then who am I to say otherwise? So. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, spelling was interesting also with Andrew Jackson. He once spelled his own name five ways in a single letter. So that's why that jumps out at me. So I guess when you're trying to not die of smallpox and everything else, that you didn't have much time to worry about things like proper spelling and grammar. And I think if one of these people like on Twitter came up to General Washington and said, that's not a word, General, that he, I don't know, he might cut them in twain, I guess, is something that he might have done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So at any rate, like I said, that's the easier of the questions. The distinction between national parks and national forests really kind of leads me to the next uh, sort of administrative milepost, uh, the story of the development of national forests. And that is uh, once Teddy Roosevelt was in office, he was sort of wildly designating uh, any number of different categories of protections across the United States. What he did was in 1905, signed the passage of what was called the Transfer Act, and that moved the forest reserves from the jurisdiction of the Department of Interior, which is where the National Park Service was and continues to be housed till this day, moved it into the Department of Agriculture. And then, as a subheading to that, under the newly created uh, United States Forest Service. And not coincidentally, he appointed one of his good buddies, one of his hunting buddies, in fact, Gifford Pinchot. He was actually the first chief forester of the U.S. Forest Service. And from National Forest standpoint, he really started to issue in, excuse me, to usher in the concept of conservation and what he termed wise use. And in fact, one of the quotes that he famously used was that conservation means the wise use of the earth and its resources for the lasting good of men. This was really an idea who perhaps its time had come as, again, all this industrial development was happening. 
he was one of the first people to latch on to the idea that if we, you know, the, the heart of the word conservation, of course, is conserve. If we use these resources, but use them, as he said, wisely, if we use them carefully, then we can, in fact, actively manage these, what were no longer forest reserves, but were now national forests, and see a lot of benefit. And that benefit is really covers a multitude of sins, if you will. You can get the trees, you can harvest the trees and use them for furniture or for building homes or for paper or whatever, you know, depending on the species of tree and where it's located and so forth. Many uses of wood, of course. So you could use it for that, but not too many trees and not all at once and, you know, a little bit at a time. Again, one of the ideas was to protect watersheds and stream quality. At that time, of course, when we had very little, if any, water treatment in place you know, across the United States, it was critically important because if the water was already dirty by the time it rolled down off the mountain, they were already behind. And then, of course, you know, there were all the, the potential pollutants that come with urban living and, and much more so at that time than today. So those forests could work to help give us clean water and they can be used for recreation and they can be used for hunting. Even though really at that time, the early 1900s, the connection between, let's say, the scientific connection between habitat and wildlife management hadn't really started to evolve yet. That was about 20 or 30 years later. But the ideas were there, and you still see that reflected today on the sign of uh, uh, at the entrance to every national forest. At the bottom, it says land of many uses. People don't always either understand or make that distinction, but it's a critically important one because the forests, national forests, were, have been for over 100 years, managed with the concept that they will be used, that the resources that are there that will be, will be used. The national parks have really more of a, what I would call preservation direction and management, and that is to sort of keep things status quo. They're managed more for scenic resources for recreation resources and i'm not talking about like valley forge national park although that falls under the same heading but a lot of the national parks that have forest resources in them have very unique or distinct features yellowstone of course being the the, the greatest example and and things like old faithful and, and those natural features that cannot be uh, replicated or or generated anywhere else so those types of things tend to be tend to fall under the preservation guideline of of national parks again as opposed to national forests which are more actively managed so it's a small distinction maybe in some people's minds but it is a critical one and it does even today lead to a lot of misunderstandings and or maybe even in some cases deliberate uh, misunderstandings and people want to look at national forests as places that you shouldn't touch and and should be kind of hands off I want to say management effort, but it's not, I guess it's non-management effort, but that is not and was never the concept from the time that, that they moved under the Department of Agriculture. You mentioned the Adirondacks there in passing, which happens to be where Theodore Roosevelt is when he learns that President McKinley is dying and that he needs to rush there, rush to Buffalo and takes the oath of office. He returns 
through a lot of this area of Pennsylvania, through a lot of the country, and he sees out there what's being done a lot of places right around the train, and he loved trees. I mean, he didn't even have a Christmas tree in the White House. He didn't like cutting down a tree to use for a Christmas tree. It was just how he felt about it. He felt so strongly about conserving them, and he, of course, felt strongly about our animals, but this didn't mean that he was above shooting, eating them when he had to, and building things out of them. Sagamore Hill, there's a ton of wood out there, and that's part of what what we admire about houses in this period, right? You walk in there and you say, wow, look at this woodwork. Imagine the craftsmanship this took. But you wanted to ensure that in 100 years, there was going to be the trees for us to make things out of. That, in, And they weren't thinking that things were going to change as much as they were. You could never know that about the future. Things have changed so much with building materials and whatnot. But they did know that there were things like vacations. And this is a notion that I think people maybe, when you said that, it sort of just you know rolls over us all. We say, okay, we thought we always had three-day weekends. You just, we take one of the things we take for granted. And there's a story by Emma Goldman about that. She takes a bunch of children that are in the tenements of the city and brings them out to the woods and she says they just are standing around they don't even know how to play and she's heartbroken by this this is the famous anarchist thinker this is the thing as people are getting more leisure time as the industrial revolution picks up speed and some of the positive results of that are that there's more leisure time there's less manpower and women power needed for all these household tasks that you can go somewhere and say hey i'd like to go see a mountain for a weekend i'd like to have the parasol ride the bikes bicycles also come into popular use in this time so i want people to realize that this really is a trip back when you go to a national forest you're touching the people here that said, I want to set this aside for you in posterity. They, It's a really a link to them. I love that sort of feeling. I love going up to a place like Bear Mountain that I know TR was, or even Oyster Bay, which is not a, it's a national site, but it's not obviously a national forest. It wasn't set aside for that, but you can walk right down to Oyster Bay where he did. You can enjoy his view. You can read his bio and see a name like Gifford Pinchot, who was your two-term Pennsylvania governor, and you can really feel that they left this view. It's it's kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, I, I completely agree, and one of the chapters in my book was talking about going hunting and using a uh, you know primitive weapon, in this case a flintlock rifle, to go out into an area that has, now this is not actually old growth forest, and I actually went out and sort of retraced the steps and I had the uh, 19th century books that were published by two gentlemen, initials E and Woodcock was his last name, and uh, an earlier um, fella who um, I called him Daniel Boone to Woodcock's uh, Davy Crockett. His name was Philip Tome, and they wrote about going hunting, market hunting in their cases, in those very same places, right along Kinzu Creek, up along the Allegheny River, and that's you know within the boundaries today, the Allegheny National Forest. So I spent a whole chapter kind of yammering on about what you just said, basically retracing their steps, hunting in these same areas, you know, the land doesn't change. The trees come and go in an area that's undeveloped. Of course, there are no people or houses or buildings that come and go. But you can go to a place and look at, for example, a huge boulder and know that, in this case, 200 years ago, or if you want to talk about, you know, the Native Americans who lived there, 400 or 600, or really back to almost 10,000 years ago when kind of the last glaciated period for the, the geographic area we're talking about, uh, that boulder's probably still been sitting there for that whole length of time. 
And if you find it a good place or, or an interesting place to, to walk up and, and maybe crouch under it or scramble up on top and stand there and look out over the area, there's an excellent chance that those people 200 or 500 or 3,000 years ago did the exact same thing and stood in that exact same spot. So you can, I guess, to kind of come back around and tie in what you said, you can experience those experiences by virtue of people like Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot. Um, one guy who I shouldn't overlook in uh, since we're tossing out names here from the late 1800s <laughs> was a guy named George Bird Grinnell, who most likely anybody listening to this has never heard of. But he was a magazine editor, 1870s or 80s, and he was one of the first people. He, he edited a magazine, which at that time I think was called The Forest and Stream, precursor to today's famous Field and Stream. He was one of the people who kind of helped get Roosevelt converted to the idea of conservation. So we shouldn't overlook him in the in the process. I think he got maybe you know one sentence in my book, which is about all he's going to get here too. But um, <laughs> and William Howard Taft in 1911, he signed some key legislation, the Weeks Act, that kind of starts this rolling. So there's a lot of people there, a lot of names, as you said. People tend to focus on T.R. and why wouldn't you? He wanted to be the bride at every wedding. So of course we focus on him. He's so loud, you know, grabbing us out of the pages of history. But a lot of people did this work. That's exactly right. And I guess where I was headed with that was to say we might not have the opportunity to stand there today and look back on these things and sort of, you know, experience these feelings and experience the wonder of just being in the outdoors, sort of soaking it all up. If somebody hadn't had the forethought to say, hey, you know what, we, we should probably got to stop tearing all this up and set a little bit aside for the future. You know, as a result of that forethought, we're able to, 100 plus years later, to enjoy those things. And most likely, you know, our kids and grandkids and many generations in the future will still have the benefit of that. And also the glaciers played a big role in moving some of these boulders. We have one right here in the very northeast corner of New Jersey, not far from the George Washington Bridge. There happens to be this big boulder. There's also one in the town of Glen Rock, big, big rock in the middle of town. And one of my friends said to me recently, my girlfriend's from Glen Rock. I have to go there. And I said, oh, she's going to show you the rock. And you have to remember to be really impressed with it. <laughs> and it is an amazing thing. It's been sitting there for, you know, we talked about a hundred years, several hundred years to go back to the Native Americans a thousand. This is something that's been there tens of thousands. When the ice receded, you know, it left rocks behind. And also another role of the forest that I didn't want to overlook that I mentioned to you off the air is, as I say in the Futurama episode, that Bigfoot needs large areas to remain elusive in. You know, he needs those areas that are sort of blurry so that campers can almost think they see him. Theodore Roosevelt himself once had a Bigfoot sighting. You can, I don't know if he was tugging our leg or not. He probably was. But Bigfoot is a crucial part of the ecosystem if he exists is part of what they say in that episode so it is a fun thing though even if it's just a legend as you said who am i to say that it doesn't exist if we had no forest a little fun campy thing like that steve austin would have nowhere to fight under the giant dress as bigfoot and rip his arm off so little things like that it's so easy to forget that so much of our lore comes from there. Campfire stories. You know, we all know that. We still have the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. And we have so many of those things that if these guys don't do this 100 years ago, those are just more wiped out areas. They're maybe more urban or suburban blight. It's so much a part of us as Americans. And yet it's something that it's easy to forget it's there as a resource. 
because it seems so limitless, and yet it would have been very limited. It might have been gone like these animals that you talked about, the elk in Pennsylvania, if they hadn't had this foresight that you talk so much about in a season on the Allegheny. That's 100% correct. And really, fast-forwarding a little bit, and the elk are actually a great example of that, one of the other things that happened, game management laws started to come into effect. And just as an example here in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Game Commission, which regulates anything that has to do with wildlife management in Pennsylvania, was established in 1895. And if you look across the states that were states at that time, you'll see that there are similar agencies. At that time, it was mostly focused on game management. Today, we would probably use the word wildlife management, but those things started to come into place. And one of the kind of cool things is that people who were hunters were some of the first people to become aware of the problems and they actually used license dollars, license fees, and then later on just flat out donations to first stop the decline, which, you know, depending on what species you're talking about, what area you're talking about, just around 1910 was sort of the, uh, the low point of North America, well, I should say North America, United States wildlife populations. So as all this started to happen, we started to throw the brakes on that. And hunters really kind of went to the forefront of reestablishing these species or, again, allowing them to repopulate, depending on what case might be. And Pennsylvania elk, they brought them in on trains. Now, the actual eastern elk species was gone, was extirpated, as I said earlier in the, in the late 1800s. But they brought elk from Colorado, I believe it was, on trains east and reestablished them, not in the Allegheny National Forest, but just a few miles to the, to the east of it. And there's an elk population in Pennsylvania today of almost a thousand. Just read something very recently here that West Virginia is now reestablishing elk populations. And there are elk populations in Kentucky and North Carolina and Michigan. You know, in the time period we're talking about here in the early 1900s, none of those existed because they had been wiped out in the, in the earlier wave of not just unregulated hunting, but simultaneously habitat destruction. So again, that's just another piece of the story. We're, we're focusing on the trees, obviously. The book is about a national forest, and, and I say right at the beginning of the book, you can't escape the trees. They're everywhere, and they're, they're what makes, in my mind, the Allegheny National Forest great. But uh, being a professional biologist, I tend to go to the next step and start thinking and talking about the wildlife as well. And you mentioned about how when these things are gone, you can't just replant them. You can't just replace all that they have there, all that biodiversity, which is a word we have today. They would have been familiar with the concept back then. But an example from here in New Jersey is – in the mid-1800s, they hunt the wild turkeys to death. I mean, those were so prevalent once, so plentiful once, that Ben Franklin wanted to make that the national bird rather than the eagle. He just thought it was majestic. It looks great in a bottle of liquor. You know, why wouldn't you want to have it as your national bird? Tastes great. <laughs> in 1977, they reintroduced 22 pairs of them here in New Jersey and smash cut to today, and it's 23,000. I post every Thanksgiving. People can see the picture if they have the inclination to scroll back at facebook.com slash history author. I come out of my house one day, and they're just just all over my car. And it was right before Thanksgiving. So I thought it was a pre-attack there, like when they organize on WKRP. <laughs> but it was it, it's crazy. But they are, they're scary. They're not, you know, they're not objectively beautiful, maybe when you look close at their heads, but they have beautiful plumage. They're really pretty harmless. Those wouldn't have been able to thrive. They wouldn't have been able to be reintroduced. They wouldn't be doing crazy things like flying through people's houses sometimes. They fly through the window if they think it's another 
wild turkey, but that wouldn't be possible if we didn't preserve some of the land around here and didn't have some trees. I mean, the deer population is is way out of hand because we don't have the predators anymore. But this is the kind of thing where, I don't know, I wouldn't want to live in a place that was just all stripped down and all paved and you weren't able to experience the history and the things like that you discuss here in a season on the Allegheny. This book would have had to have been something I was reading by a long dead author if these people didn't get their act together and have a little bit of foresight. That is 100% correct. And that and that really leads me to maybe the most important, in my mind, important subject that I want to talk about. And you, you mentioned earlier Taft and the Weeks Act, which was 1911. The initial idea of quote-unquote national forest or earlier the forest reserves was, well, there are these sort of unspoiled places out west. The saw blades haven't quite gotten to them yet, so let's hurry up and set them aside before somebody gets in there and, and starts uh, you know, cross-cutting them to the ground. The Weeks Act, they really wanted to set aside the, I believe it was the White Mountain area. It was either White Mountain or Green Mountain. I'm getting my colored mountains in New England mixed up, but really wanted to establish that area as a, as a national forest. So that was kind of the, the driver behind the Weeks Act. And so they did that. It was designated. And then in Pennsylvania, what was happening was this logging industry that had taken hold. And of course, you know, the very name Pennsylvania has Sylvan in it. It means Penn's Woods. And there was this massive forest that covered the whole, most of the whole state. Now, I, I guess I need to jump back to for a second, will be the uh, prehistory author show here. <laughs> it, it is important to point out that the Native Americans who lived here did actively manage the forest. And when we talk about all these things happening in the last 100 or 150 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years ago, they understood. Now, they didn't have saws, and certainly not you know chainsaws or bulldozers or anything like that, but their tool for management was fire. And so they would burn large areas of this when it would get too, for their uses, too mature. And their use was, was again, wildlife. They mostly wanted to be able to use these areas to hunt for subsistence, you know, for food. So they would burn large areas, allow the undergrowth to come back. And they understood that that would attract animals, the deer and the turkeys that you were just talking about. And that made dinner. So, I mean, it was a pretty simple equation. But what happened, and this is something that, was detailed in really excellent fashion by, um, I think it's Charles Mann, wrote 1491, you know, with the introduction of the Europeans and more importantly their diseases, the, what was a fairly large population of Native Americans was knocked back to probably less than 10% in the East of what it had been. You know, some estimates go down as much as 5 or 3%. And so they just didn't have the people to manage anymore. And so it's not a coincidence that the and I, I always hesitate to use the word virgin forest because of the reason I'm just talking about, but the, the forest that existed when European settlers came into western Pennsylvania in the 1800s and started cutting down the trees was about 500 years old. So if you do the math backwards, that leads you right back to, you know, to Columbus. So what happened was essentially, you know, I'm capitalizing what happened over about a 70-year window here, but in northern Pennsylvania in particular, and in the Allegheny National Forest, and very specifically, almost every tree was cut. These timber companies came in, they cut all these areas. First, they cut the white pine. That was used for shipbuilding. In fact, when they cut the long, straight trees, some of them were as much as 200 feet long, they didn't even call them trees. They called them spars because they were sent down the Susquehanna River and to the Chesapeake Bay where they were used in the shipbuilding industry. Now I'm talking 
you know, mid 1800s here, obviously pre uh, ironclad era. So that was the first thing to go. And then when leather usage started really expanding, tanneries became important, tanning became important. And coincidentally, and to the benefit of the people who were in that industry, the dom one of the two dominant species in, in Pennsylvania forest at that time, and again, specifically Allegheny National, what's now the Allegheny National Forest, were hemlock trees, which are great for, for producing tannin. And so they were all cut and the bark stripped off. Annually, the Pennsylvania Lumber Museum, which is in northern Pennsylvania, about 40 miles east of the Allegheny National Forest, on the 4th of July, the Bark Peelers Convention. That's where the name came from. So they peeled the bark, uh, used that in the tanning process. And what's funny is we, at least I, would initially conceive that as well. Of course, there were a lot of horse and buggies, so they needed leather for saddles and bridles and all those sorts of things. But what was really happening was as the Industrial Revolution was taking off into that Gilded Age again, most of the equipment in factories was belt-driven. It was those long leather belts that drove the, demand, the increased demand over that time period for leather and, and by extension for hemlock to be cut down for tanning. So first the white pine went, then the uh, hemlocks went, and then in the early 1900s, the wood chemical industry came along where they were making methanol and you know a variety of other wood chemicals. And then they started making things, what we would consider today to be as insignificant as matchsticks, but there were huge matchstick factories in northern Pennsylvania. And so the, the long and the short of it is they cut every stick. They cut every branch. There was nothing left. These companies would cut everything and then they would just move on. They would move west. They would move to Michigan or Wisconsin or, you know, Oregon uh, eventually. Like locusts or the uh, those giant flocks of pigeons that we no longer have. They're extinct now, but they would just come in, soil everything, shall we say, and eat everything possible and then fly off, you know. So these big thousands, tens of thousands of birds all in one area. So that that's sort of what humans should have known better, but they thought that it was endless. Exactly. Supply, like the buffalo. Exactly. Well, and it's funny, actually, as you mentioned passenger pigeons, because there is actually a little town within the area of the National Forest that's called Pigeon in recognition of the passenger pigeons that live there. But what happened was, is what you said. I mean, they were hunted in, you know, sort of the thumbnail story that you always hear about passenger pigeons as well. They were hunted to extinction. Well, technically that's true, but more accurately what happened was their habitat was wiped out because they lived in those mature forests. And as that was taken away, they had no way to, they were being hunted simultaneously and they had no way to basically catch up or keep up. So they would keep them from landing. They would bang a lot of pots. Well, the Chinese did this on a much larger scale. The communists under Mao, one of the plans was, well, birds eat grain, so get rid of the birds, and they would bang pans, and they wouldn't be able to land, and they would die. Unfortunately, it caused a mass starvation, right, because birds also do things like eat insects. But for those passenger pigeons, one other thing there, just a little animal aside, is they also didn't really reproduce very efficiently in the sense that if they didn't have 300 other birds around watching them, they just weren't in the mood. Exactly. So that's why we weren't able to just, well, you'd say put a couple of them in a zoo and you know try to repopulate them or keep the species going or even 100. But they just sort of had this uh, bird fetish, maybe you'd call it or something. <laughs> I know it shouldn't make light of a mass extinction, but it was just part of the thing. It just didn't mesh very well with a human society that didn't want to just suddenly have birds descending on us like a Hitchcock movie every so often <laughs> and eating and everything. So. Well, to kind of tie that back, they couldn't have those 300 other pigeons watching them if there wasn't a big enough stand of forest for them all to be in. 
My guest is Robert Hilliard, author of A Season on the Allegheny. You can find him online at the Twitter handle RobHilliard underscore 66 or Facebook.com slash A Season on the Allegheny. And now you all know exactly how Allegheny is spelled in that Facebook handle, by the way. Once there, you'll enjoy his musings, including hints about his upcoming novel due out later in 2017. It's a Civil War tale of a former slave turned Union spy. Dave Wolf of the Midwest Book Review wrote of A Season on the Allegheny, quote, The parts of the book that intrigued me most were the hard-fought battles over the use of the forest. Hilliard leads you step-by-step through those battles that have ensued over the half-million acres of wooded land. He also brings you along on hunts for pheasant, grouse, deer, bear, and waterfowl. Hilliard's research is nothing short of excellent, and I would consider this a wintertime must-read, unquote. The idea of winter makes us think of heavy clothes, right? So that's a seamless segue there into the iconic Pennsylvania tuxedo. People may not know much about it until they read a book like A Season on the Allegheny, but they've certainly seen it. Tell us briefly, what is it and why is it so important to you out there in Western Pennsylvania? (laughs) Well, the Pennsylvania tuxedo is, uh, I guess, literally and figuratively near to my heart, at least when I'm outside. I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with Woolrich Company, which was founded in 1830 in northern Pennsylvania, more north central Pennsylvania, east of the Allegheny National Forest. And they build themselves today as the original outdoor clothing company, uh, which is pretty accurate. They were founded to serve, to provide warm clothes to loggers, or what, what the term that was used at the time was wood hicks, that uh, were cutting down all the trees across the state, and that was really the genesis of the Woolrich Company. As time went on, as I said, a lot of those loggers picked up and moved west, but another crowd that sort of emerged was hunters. Pennsylvania today is in the top five states in terms of the number of licensed hunters in the U.S., but for many decades, it was number one. There were more licensed hunters in Pennsylvania than any other state. And sometime in the early 20th century, Woolrich kind of latched on to this idea that, hey, you know, this market's growing. How about if we make something specific for them? They, they already had a pattern that they refer to as their classic plaid, which is, and again, like you said, everybody may not know it, but you've all seen it. It's the red with sort of a black check over it. So they took that pattern and made it into an incredibly heavy and warm and durable coat that became known, not very imaginatively maybe, as their classic hunt coat. Then they went a step further and they made a hat that looked exactly the same. Then they went a step further than that and they came out with wool pants that looked exactly the same. And when you put all those three things together, or really just the the coat and the pants, the hat is uh, just sort of a nice touch, it became known as the Pennsylvania tuxedo. And I don't have any proof of this, but I strongly suspect that that was originally a derogatory term. But, you know, like Yankee Doodle or, you know, any number of other derogatory terms over the years, the people who were being called uh, that name, or in this case, the, the clothing, they decided, hey, you know what, that sounds pretty cool. I kind of like that. So they latched on to it. It was funny in the book, part of what I did was travel around to, uh, I, I described myself in the beginning of the book as sort of Scarlet O'Hara of the forest, where I relied on the kindness of others to help me out throughout this process. So I was staying at different hunting camps as this was going on, and I really wanted to write about the Pennsylvania tuxedo, and I have a Woolrich jacket, 
but not the pants, <laughs> my waist size at the time being a limitation. But I wanted to talk about the Pennsylvania tuxedo. So we, we went up, uh, I was staying at a friend's camp and there were about eight or nine guys there. And we got up for the first morning of deer season. And I came walking out and there was another one of the guys a little bit older than me in the camp and he had the full Pennsylvania tuxedo. He had the pants, uh, didn't have the hat in Pennsylvania. Now you're not allowed to, you have to wear a orange, orange yeah. hat. Yeah. But he had the coat and the pants and I pointed at it and I started to say, Hey, that's a, and he goes, Pennsylvania tuxedo, like as proud as could be. <laughs> that is in the book, but through Twitter, I had, you know, made some sort of passing mentions of it. And the folks at Woolrich noticed that I was uh, putting this hashtag Pennsylvania tuxedo out there, basically just commenting on people's photos that I saw that were wearing it. And uh, they invited me to guest blog on their blog. So they posted it earlier this fall and the guy contacted me a few weeks after and he said, that is the most popular blog post we have ever had. <laughs> wow. There is now a beer, a craft beer called Pennsylvania Tuxedo in a concert, I guess, with a brewer called Dogfish Head Ale. Sure. Very good. They have a batch that they do, I think, every fall. It has spruce tips or something in it. Not hemlock, which is probably a good choice to keep their clientele alive. <laughs> yeah. And it became so iconic, in fact, that there is actually a full Pennsylvania tuxedo donated by Sid Caesar that is on display in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, uh, in New York City. So hmm. it rose to the level, at least of pop culture, to where somebody thought they should probably enshrine it in a museum. You said about the Pennsylvania tuxedo being originally probably derisive. It reminded me more presidential trivia of Martin Van Buren. You were talking about the white-tailed deer, his faction in the state of New York before he's president, before he's in Washington. They derisively called them the bucktails because they said, oh, they run away from a fight and you just see that white tail. And so they adopted that. And so it ties very nicely in there with our deer story. I, I would have thought they might have gone with something making fun of his sideburns, but that's what's it. to make fun of? Yeah. He has glorious sideburns, mutton chops, <laughs> those mutton chops. I want them to come back. Why won't they? I, uh, yeah, I don't think my wife would, <laughs> would let me go that route, but what I was going to say about the bucktails is <laughs> one of the civil war regiments that was raised in Northern Pennsylvania. Again, this very sort of hunting, uh, rural area was very proudly called the bucktails. And in fact, you can see a monument to them today. I believe that's in Emporium, PA, which is just maybe not even an hour east of the Allegheny National Forest. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I've seen pictures from the early 1900s of what is now the Allegheny National Forest. And in particular, one area along the Clarion River, which is now designated a National Wild and Scenic River. And when you look at these pictures from about 1917 or so, the people who lived at that time, if you said, we're going to designate this a, a wild and scenic river, they would have probably literally laughed in your face because <laughs> there's not a stick, there's not a tree, it is just dirt hillside, and the only way that you can tell you're actually looking at the same area is, of course, the river itself in the photo, and a couple of huge boulders on the hillside, which remain there today, naturally enough, and so you can say, well, I'm looking at the same place, but you couldn't conceive it because there were no trees. So when they proposed the Allegheny for designation as a national forest in the early 1920s, there were newspaper editorials, people just deriding it, and they called it the Allegheny brushland. They said, yeah, you can't call it a forest. There's no trees. Maybe we'll call it the Allegheny brushland. Maybe we'll call it the Allegheny desert was another suggestion. But what was beginning to happen was, again, this concept that, okay, yes, there are no trees. We recognize that. But if we set this area aside, Maybe they can return. And you, you said earlier, there are too many deer. 
that is as loaded a political discussion in Pennsylvania as any statement you can possibly make. Now, <laughs> there are certainly places that that is 100% correct, and just not that many years ago, the Allegheny National Forest was one of them. But in the early 1920s, there were no deer, uh, virtually. There were very few, but there again, there was no food for them, so they moved on to other places. In a lot of cases, they moved on to farmers' fields that were nearby or relatively nearby. So when the deer disappeared or thinned to a very small level, the trees were able to start recovering. And I think a really important piece of that, the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, they started allowing the forest to recover. And then as it recovered, these species started coming back in. Allegheny National Forest was designated in 1923, hardly any forest at all at that time. By 1928, when I was doing research for the book, I saw letters from the Pennsylvania Game Commission saying, there are too many deer here that are browsing down the trees that we're trying to recover. And I always want to say it's funny. It's not really that funny. But every decade from then until now, you can find reports and letters and newspaper editorials and, of course, today, blogs and websites saying, the Game Commission says there's too many deer. I don't think there's enough deer. Many of those people are saying that are hunters because, of course, they want more deer for more opportunities. Others are people who, you know, just like to see deer or like them in their yard or whatever. Maybe they don't have shrubs that the deer come and eat, so they don't, you know, they like the deer a little better than the guy next door who yeah, shrubs. Ron Kuby, the lawyer, civil rights lawyer, says they're Agent Orange with hooves. <laughs> so that's why. <what>. Yeah. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that there is no more destructive animal in North America than the white-tailed deer. First of all, the population, the geographic spread of that population, which is most of North America, the volume of food that they consume in a day and the types of food that they consume, you'd be very hard-pressed. And like I said, I'm, I'm a biologist, so I, this is something I've looked at over the years. I don't know of another species that is more destructive to the landscape, I should be a little bit more specific, than the white-tailed deer. So it was kind of good news, bad news that at the turn of the century that there were no deer, or very few deer, in the Yonge National Forest because that is what allowed it to start recovering. But then it's become a, a virtually a perennial battle every year since then. What is the right level? Should it be X number? Should it be this number? And of course, for whatever reason, those deer just won't stand still so that you can go around and count them <laughs> and, and say, oh, there's too many here, you know, uh, or there's too few here, whatever the, you know, whatever the right answer may be. But yeah. And they wear glasses and stuff. So, you, you know, they're disguised as multiple tribes. Exactly. But you can't, uh, you also, you know, it's no fun to starve to death. So, what well, part of the idea of us bending nature to our will with things like national parks, things like the houses and cities where we all presumably live in some kind of dwelling where there aren't wild animals is we have to take on that obligation. We don't want there to be wolves. And there's, I believe, four North American jaguars left, things like this. So, you know, that they, they can't eat many deer. So, this is the kind of thing where, you know, as a species ourselves, we have to take on that role of balancing it as distasteful as it is to some people. We see some of the deer around here in New Jersey. They're so thin in the winter. They're just too many because they're herds. They're not made to be able to die of old age, frankly. I mean, they're herds and they die and they get eaten and, you know, people don't usually rescue them when it was back 200 years ago. That's also part of the history here because hunting would have been much more woven into the way that they manage the farm. So I think that's fascinating when you talk about that in a season on the Allegheny. I wanted to ask you about that CCC that you just mentioned because you have a very personal connection to that, the Civilian Conservation Corps. How did you get interested in that through your family? 
my personal connection is that my grandfather was in the CCC. His nickname was Deacon. That's what everybody referred to him as. It's a classic Deacon story, as my sisters and I say. For years, he talked about his time spent in the service in the 1930s. And unfortunately, I didn't find this out until not only after the book was written, but just a couple of years ago when he was on his deathbed, I started, you know, probably having a conversation we should have had much earlier and started asking him about that. And what turned out to be the case was he was only in the Army for a few months and he had a recurrence of a gallstone. And so they gave him a medical discharge. And this was 1937. So he had no job. Obviously, the Depression was raging. And so he went into the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. And, and he used to tell us, yeah, I was in Montana when I was in the service. And I'm thinking, were we defending against Canada or what What exactly was he doing up there? Uh, but it turned out he wasn't in the Army, or, well, only very briefly in the Army, but he was actually in the CCC. He was a CCC boy. I knew, having done the research for the book and learned a lot about the CCCs, I said, oh, yeah, you know, they built all these roads and they built dams and they planted trees and they did all these things. I said, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, they had a baseball team and they had a football team and we traveled around and we played teams from the mining towns and other CCC camps and the local little towns that were up in Montana, and we played against them. And I said, oh, you know, that's neat. And I said, well, what was your job, though? And he said, I just told you that was my job. <laughs> you know, what he explained to me, they would designate for the guys who were the better athletes, they would designate a, a shadow, if you will, and whatever that guy worked building a road or planting trees or doing whatever job they were doing that day, you got paid the same amount that he got paid for that day while you were off playing ball, you know, against whatever mining town happened to be trotting out a, a semi-pro baseball team. So I said, well, obviously you were pretty good. And he looked me straight in the eye. As I said, he was on his deathbed then, but he raised his right fist and he said, 38 home runs one year. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the CCCs of the National Forest, and this is a critical piece of the equation you know, I mentioned all the logging that had been done. What these companies would do is they would leave the tops of the trees, the, the twigs and things that were off the top that had very little value, if any, uh, just leave them laying on the ground. And that was called slash. And they were stacks, piles, 15, 20, even 30 feet high out around the forest where, where all this logging had taken place. And so you had this drying wood. You had no new green wood. Forest hadn't started recovering yet. And Every year, or several times a year, fires would sweep through. There's an excellent article that I quoted a bit from in the book by a gentleman who's a CCC historian named Mike Schultz. It was a great resource for me. And he said in that article, they feared the coming of the fire season, which of course would be coming out of the, the spring here in Pennsylvania, our wet time of year is March and April. They feared the coming of the fire season like they feared the coming of diphtheria. And that really, to me, brought it home is that they would have these repeated fires time after time after time. And nothing could grow. It seared the soil. It burned all the seed bank that was within the soil. So it basically became a just a repeating cycle. No, no new trees could grow because the seeds were burnt. And the piles of slashing that weren't burnt from the last fire caught with the next fire. So it was just this repetitive cycle. When the CCC came along, several dozen actually camps in and around the Allegheny National Forest. And in fact, the first, depending on who you ask, the first working CCC camp was within the boundaries of the Allegheny National Forest at During, I believe. I might be mistaken on that, but I believe that's where it was. Now, there was one in Virginia that was sort of technically the first one, and I know FDR went 
and sort of kicked off a program, but Pennsylvania thinks they're right about everything, including the expelling of Allegheny. They will tell you that the first truly working CCC camp was within the Allegheny National Forest. But the most important job that those CCC boys had was fire suppression. Yes, they planted trees, and you can still see some of the pine plantations that they put in today. I talked about that a little bit in the book about walking through one of those, and you can tell them because they're perfectly straight lines, nice little grid, typical government job. But the most notable thing that they did in these cut over eastern forests was to suppress fire. And once they were able to do that, that really then allowed the full regeneration of the forest. Of course, that led to all the things we talked about. Animal species came back afterwards. One of the really cool projects that I liked from a wildlife biology standpoint was they actually did inventories. They, they had so many of these, these young men out there that they would stand them fingertip to fingertip and they would have them walk through a patch of forest, maybe five acres or 10 acres, and they would say, inventory every animal that you see as you walk along. And so they have these great counts. So we know very specifically in the 1930s, in a particular patch of woods, you know, over, let's say, five acres, there were X number of deer, there were X number of gray squirrels, there were whatever animal species it might be. Not one turkey, by the way, not one wild turkey, interestingly. Many, many rough grouse, which is an early successional species. It likes young forest, which is, of course, what they had been. Turkeys tend to like a little bit more mature forest because they like to roost up high where things can't kind of grab them at night. Their return was you know, a few decades later, but the critical contribution of the CCCs in the eastern forests, it's not one that you would think of typically because you associate FDR's tree army, right? You think of them with, with tree planting and uh, one of Pinchot's projects or what when he ran for governor of Pennsylvania, one of his slogans was get the farmers out of the mud. And his second term as PA governor was during the, the depression. He used the CCCs to do some of that, improve roads and better roads and, and get the farmers out of the mud. But that fire suppression was really, that was the last link in the chain that allowed true forest recovery on a broad scale to happen. An important topic from your book that I wanted to make sure we gave you a chance to touch upon is the Kinzu Dam. We talked about native peoples and we talked about their husbandry of the land using something like fire to clear out the brush to maintain the forest. This is something that we suppress very much today and eventually the forest decides it's going to have a fire and it it's much more devastating than these sort of control burned. We don't have them on the scale that they did. Of course, there's also a lot of houses and things like that. There's a much larger population. But this story of the Kinzu Dam, I thought about it when you first talked about those people that said, hey, we're already living here, you know, and you're going to declare this now a national forest and say that it's a, a resource for future generations. Well, we're kind of living here. So that was a tough thing for them. And this is that, this Kinzu Dam on a much larger scale. This is something that Johnny Cash sang about. It's during the John F. Kennedy administration when it starts getting built, I think 1960. So tell us about about that. How are these people displaced when they decide to build this dam? And why did they feel that building the dam was more important than respecting the people that already lived there? The Allegheny Reservoir, which is created by the Kinzu Dam, I knew it from the time I was a kid. We used to go there. There are beaches. You can go swimming, go boating. It's, it is the central recreation feature of the Allegheny National Forest. It, it draws the most visitors every year. It's the biggest attraction in terms of numbers of people who go there. So I knew the Kinzu Dam growing up, you know, from the time I was a toddler, but I never knew this story until I started doing research for the book. And 
what happened to capsulize it was the Seneca Indians were were sort of the western piece, uh, the western end of the longhouse, as they as they used to say, of the Iroquois Confederacy, the sort of loose Native American government that covered the Mid Atlantic and, and New England states. The Senecas lived there. There was a, an individual war chief named Cornplanter who actually sided with the British during the Revolutionary War, but after the war, instead of wanting to continue to fight, he decided to make peace. Negotiated a treaty with when Washington was in office. It was the Pickering Treaty, 1794. It was signed, and it essentially deeded about 30,000 acres of property along the west edge of the Allegheny National River. I'm sorry, <laughs> of the Allegheny River in that area as a Seneca reservation, with language to the effect that the United States will never claim ownership of this property. For about 120, 130 years, they lived there very peacefully. Corn planter, of course, died, was buried there. One of the important, from a Seneca standpoint, locations very close to where Corn Planter's gravesite was, he had a half-brother named Handsome Lake, and there was a regeneration of the Seneca religion based on an experience that Handsome Lake had in that area. So that was a sacred site to them. Beyond the fact that they were living in and around that area, right next to the river were some really critically important locations for the Seneca. So, like I said, fast forward 120 years. In the early 1900s, there were a series of really devastating floods that came down the Allegheny River. And people may know or may not, but the Allegheny, along with the Monongahela, are two-thirds of the three rivers around which Pittsburgh is formed. The Allegheny and Monongahela flow together to form the Ohio, and that's the site of, well, when I was growing up, Three River Stadium, hence the name. So there were a series of floods that hit downriver and in particular hit Pittsburgh, and so flood control started to become a really serious topic, and, and I'm talking about a half dozen floods over about a 20-year period. And then finally, one of the most famous floods in the history of Pittsburgh, which really kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back from a government action standpoint was the 1936 St. Patrick's Day flood in which uh, about half of the downtown flooded. So people had already been making noise saying, well, we got to do something, we got to do something, we got to do something. So they turned loose the Army Corps of Engineers and the engineers started doing their ciphering and they came up with three potential solutions, all of which involved capturing the water on the upriver section of the Allegheny. One of those was to build a series of dams along the upper part of the river, along with a kind of a diversion channel. The second was, which was kind of incredible to me, they talked about building a channel that would divert flood water from the upper Allegheny into Lake Erie, which is like 60 or 65 miles to the west. That would have been some engineering feat, although I guess, you know, when you think about it, they did something similar in Florida when they uh, in the 50s when they were trying to drain the Everglades, which, of course, in the 90s, they went back and undid. But the third solution was to build a very high, in fact, to be precise, about 179 feet high dam just upriver of Warren, Pennsylvania. And doing so would necessarily flood. I think there were six small towns along there and about 10,000 acres on the West Bank, about 10,000 acres of the Seneca Reservation, including Corn Planter's gravesite and Handsome Lake's religious site. The Seneca naturally enough fought it. 
some of the local towns did initially until another pretty severe flood came along in the 1950s and damaged really everything along the whole length of the river. And at that point, it was pretty much only the Seneca who were trying to argue against the dam. And they pushed for the alternative solutions, but of course those turned out to be more costly and would have resulted in taking more property. That didn't work. They went to U.S. Congress. That didn't work. They took to the airwaves, as you said, Johnny Cash, on his uh, Bitter Tears album, which I think was 1964. So the dam was under construction but not finished yet. Wrote a song specifically, I think it was titled As Long As the Grass Shall Grow. And they went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, basically lost at every stage of the fight. They hoped to make it an issue in the 1960 presidential election. And Kennedy was seemed supportive. Uh, but in 1961, he came out in a face-to-face discussion with him and said, look, the flood control basically is too important, and what we will save is more important than the 10,000 acres that you will lose. And so they acquired that property through eminent domain. They built the dam. It was commissioned in 1966. It's the kind of thing that, as I said, I never even heard of it, and I spent lots of time in the Allegheny National Forest. I grew up in Western PA. But among the Seneca, it has left, maybe the uh, the album title Bitter Tears is appropriate because it has left very bitter feelings, even to this day. Every now and then you see a newspaper article crop up, particularly in the papers in, in western New York or, or northwestern Pennsylvania, someone from the Seneca Nation sort of making a, a reference to that, and it's still a, a painful decision and, and a painful impact on their tribe. Was it worth it? Was it justified? unquestionably has saved billions of dollars in in damage over the years. It has certainly saved lives because, you know, people were killed in each of these flood incidents. Uh, I know when Hurricane Agnes came through in 1972, there was very severe flooding, but it would have been far worse had the Kinsey Dam not existed. And again, in 2004, when Hurricane Ivan came through, the Allegheny River flooded quite badly, almost up into Heinz Field. Well, University of Pittsburgh was playing a football game. <laughs> On the telecast of the show, you could actually see flotsam and jetsam floating down the river in the uh, open end of the end zone. People's boats, people's box, sections of people's houses, probably. Those would have all been much worse, much, much worse, uh, not only in terms of dollars, but in terms of lost lives, if we didn't have the Kingsley Dam. Does that justify the trade-off? I'm not the person to answer that question, but it's an interesting one to ponder, for sure. Well, Rob, if this were a real hike, this would probably be about the time we'd head into a cabin for a stiff belt of the sauce, maybe one of those tuxedo beers. So I'll ask you one final question. Places like the Allegheny National Forest, they're part of our heritage and our history. Not always great history, as you just said, these trade-offs that people have to make, often make for other people. But when readers take this walk with you in a season on the Allegheny, as I just have, What do you hope it'll tell them about how they can get involved, how they can do more than just sort of drive by these national forests or through these national parks from their car on the highway? How can they ensure that they take this legacy that they inherited from men like TR and Taft and Pinchot and be one of those small people that we were mentioning earlier, guys you never heard about? You know, they may never hear the name Robert Hilliard unless they pick up your book in 100 years, but you play a role here in trying to preserve it. So what can listeners do to support this national treasure and this place that really is something we do want to conserve. This is our kind of our national backyard here. We need to be able to go there. We want to be able to play, but also 
a backyard in the sense of the old days where it's somewhere we really need for fresh water and to have grazing and all these other things. So have at it. What do you tell people? Just two words. Get involved. I like the phrase that you just used. It's sort of our national backyard. I, I hope if people do buy the book, they read past the first sentence. But the first sentence says, these forests are ours. They belong to every one of us. And that's whether you're a hunter or a non-hunter or an anti-hunter, whether you're somebody who believes in careful, sustained forest management and conserving, cutting some trees, but leaving some for tomorrow, whether you're somebody who believes that we should never touch a tree, never cut down a tree for any reason, uh, whether you're somebody that likes hiking or whether you're somebody that likes four-wheelers, whatever it is. There's people on every side of the spectrum. Every one of them will have a different idea about how the forest should be managed. And that's fine. What you can't do is sort of like it's sort of like going to the polls. You can't complain about it if you don't get involved. You have very little standing to say, well, they should be doing it this way if you're not somebody who's actively involved in the process. And like almost every government planning process, there are many opportunities. They're supposed to do a new forest plan for each national forest every five years. It's probably more like every 10 years by the time it gets actually put in place. But there are many opportunities for public input in that process. So every person can basically sit at their computer and get involved a little bit by just submitting a comment and saying, hey, I think you ought to be doing this, or I think you ought not to be doing this. And that's a very easy way to do it. Now, the Allegheny specifically, one of the things I was amazed at in going through the process of, of writing this book and doing the research for it is how much passion that half a million acres of woods inspires in people and how much effort and time and money, the hours of volunteer time that people have spent investing in it to do all the things that we've been talking about, to improve the habitat, to make sure that it's the best that it can be. You know, again, the land of many uses for, for many multiple uses. It has just, in a way, inspired people with such passion that they spend, you know, every extra dollar, every extra hour, uh, and make all this effort to improve habitat and improve the forest in some way or another, whether it's building a trail or planting trees or whatever. The Forest Service, I can tell you from experience, is very open to that. You know, they want help. They can't do everything. It costs money. They don't have the money to do everything they want to do. And there are these organizations, conservation organizations, Rough Grouse Society, Pheasants Forever, Quality Deer Management Association. Those are all hunter-based, National Wild Turkey Federation. Those are all hunter-based conservation organizations, but there are others as well. And those are all volunteer-funded, membership-funded, and they actively do projects on the national forest to make it a better place. I would encourage people, again, whether it's just sit at your computer and firing off an email to the Forest Service or to your congressman or whatever, you know, however you might decide to pursue that, or whether you want to go out there and get the shovel out and start imitating FDR's tree army and planting some trees. You can't just go do it. You have to ask first, but <laughs> it's an approved project. You can definitely go do it. I, I just encourage people to get involved. And if you don't want to get involved at a minimum, go there, go see it, get out of the car and, and just walk around a little bit, just sit and listen or sit and look sit and watch and experience all those things that you were talking about earlier about just going out into the forest and enjoy it for a little bit because if nothing else, nothing else, you'll get a little bit of appreciation for the benefits of 
having conserved those lands for well over a century. Well, Robert Hilliard, author of A Season on the Allegheny, thank you for joining us today for this look at the history below our feet when we visit one of these national forests or are on the highway they're zipping by. Keep picturing driving from New York up to Montreal. You drive through so much of that Adirondack forest. You know, you just see it there, but it's easy to forget when you're zooming by that it's playing a very real role in our lives. Every glass of water that we get there in the city, it plays some role in it. So it really is important. This this was a fun one for me to do. I like to think about that being out there in the woods, especially here in the cold when sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, I wish I had a Pennsylvania tuxedo. I'll look forward to catching a sight of you in the woods next time we're tracking Bigfoot. And I hope you will come back and talk with us about your novel when it comes out later this year. I will absolutely look forward to it, Dean. It's been a pleasure. And I certainly hope I've upheld the standards of all the wonderful authors that you've had on the show prior to me. Again, the book is A Season on the Allegheny. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even click through the Amazon banner on our homepage for all your online purchases. Whether you're buying a book or camping supplies, go to historyauthor.com, click through that banner, and Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost in your shopping cart. Once again, my sincere thanks to Robert Hilliard for hiking us through history today in Pennsylvania's Allegheny National Forest. Pay him a visit on Twitter at RobertHilliard underscore 66 or toss him a like at Facebook.com slash a season on the Allegheny. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. Well, until our next trip into the past together, we leave you with a public service announcement from the ghost of Forest Service's past. This spot aired during Tales of the Texas Rangers, which ran on NBC Radio from 1950 to 1952. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today and have a great week. At this time of the year, we spend a lot of time out of doors, hiking and camping and on picnic trips in the woods and the mountains. That means more danger of forest fires. This summer, thousands of acres of valuable timberland will be destroyed because of carelessness. And in these days of defense emergency, our natural resources are more vital than ever. It's up to you to be sure that you do not cause the tragedy, the shameful waste brought about by a forest fire. Just follow a few simple rules. Crush out cigarettes, cigar, and pipe ashes. Break matches in two after using them. Drown all campfires, then stir and drown them again. Find out the law before using any kind of fire. Forest fires destroy timber, wildlife, and the water supply. They destroy the natural resources on which our nation depends. So don't be careless for a moment when you're in the mountains or woodlands. Forest fires are our most shameful waste. So remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Now, Act Two of Tales of the Texas Rangers. You still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. What do you mean you don't believe in Bigfoot? He believes in you.